If you were going to choose one person to train actor Sigourney Weaver in How to Grunt Like a Gorilla for her starring role as legendary Diane Fossey, who would you choose? Would it be the man Fossey herself famously nicknamed Worm Boy? And what if you were looking at gorillas as more than just our hairy cousins, but as ecological engines driving the economy of Africa's Congo Basin rainforest? Who might you turn to? Who would you consult? Welcome to Talking Apes. My guest this time on Talking Apes is that worm boy, world-renowned British conservationist Ian Redmond, OBE. Ian has been a passionate primate lover for nearly half a century, since beginning his work in the misty mountains of the Virungas in the 1980s. There, he studied under gorilla legend Diane Fossey. He has been awarded the Order of the British Empire, and he's also received multiple international awards for his conservation film work, both behind and in front of the camera, including a Lifetime Achievement Award from the New York Wildlife Conservation Film Festival. For the past decade, he has been the UN Ambassador to the Convention on Migratory Species. Ian is also the founder and chair of Ape Alliance, a network of 95 international organizations focused on the conservation and survival of great apes. Hi, I'm your host, Jerry Ellis, and you're listening to Talking Apes, where we explore the world of apes with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. This segment of Talking Apes was originally recorded as a live Facebook event. I did want to start off with something I, I bumped into, and this was it as an introduction to you, and this is in your own words. I am a naturalist by birth, a biologist by training, a conservationist by necessity. I wanted to start a little bit with your background and where you you sort of got started. I, I In fact, I found out you were born in Malaysia. So that's, that's a pretty exciting start to life, in fact. It, it would have been, wouldn't it? Yes. You, you think of a childhood in the tropics, uh, learning about all that biodiversity. Uh, unfortunately, I, I was kidnapped as a toddler and, and taken <laughs> to Europe by, by my parents, uh, who yeah, brought me. Let's add that part by your parents. <laughs> so so um, I spent my childhood in Beverly, in Yorkshire, quite a long way from non human apes, um, but uh, with a, a lifelong hankering to get back to the tropics and, and see what I missed during that boyhood. Um, which I eventually managed, uh, although not initially, back to Malaysia, as I'd, as I'd intended, um, but to Africa. So I, I suppose I was kidnapped a second time by gorillas <laughs> because I got the chance to go and uh, work with Diane Fossey. And um, what they don't warn you, Diane warned me about the bad weather, the, the, the limited food, the lack of socialization, the, all the isolation. She didn't warn me about the addictive nature of gorillas. But I suspect that the people who tuned into this are, are fellow addicts. So uh, my name's Ian and I'm a gorillaholic um, because gorillas are, are wonderful beings. They're gorilla beings, uh, just as we are human beings. And the opportunity as a, as a, a young naturalist, newly trained as a biologist, um, but know nothing, knowing nothing about Africa or, or field work, um, to get to go and sit in a family of gorillas every day and take notes on their behavior and observe them was was just um well beyond well, that actually is something anyone's I, dreams i've never heard i mean i know you did that work and we we actually crossed over a bit in in time frames in in my early days with mountain girls but what i've never heard is 
Like you weren't trained as a primatologist. How did you end up in the Barungas doing mountain gorillas? I mean, that that's, I, I don't think I've ever heard that story. That's the fickle finger of fate. Ah. <laughs> um, uh, at university, uh, whilst not excelling academically, I did organize a lot. And one of the things I organized was the uh, speakers for the biology society, which is a great position. If anyone's in that in a position to take on the role of organizing speakers, you look for interesting people, you write to them, and they come and talk to you. It's wonderful. <laughs> so I heard of um, a scientist who was writing up his PhD in Cambridge, who had spent two years studying the gorillas. I thought, that sounds interesting. Uh, that was Sandy Harcourt, who's oh, wow. um, long-standing professor in uh, UC Davis. And Sandy came to Keele University, where I was an undergraduate, um, gave an interesting talk. I put him up in my flat for the night because uh, he couldn't get back to Cambridge the same night. And uh, he gave me Diane's address uh, to write to her, say, offering to help. Uh, he, I don't think he'd mind me saying, he, he warned me not to mention his name because he and Diane had fallen out big time. He said, that won't be an advantage. But he said, and this was perhaps more important, he said, mention it if you have any aptitude for mending things because living in the middle of nowhere, if something breaks, it stays broken. Mm. And it just happens. I'm sort of a compulsive fixer. I can't help fiddling with things and trying to make them right. Uh, which, which gives me plenty to do when you go to, to developing countries where you can't even get this, the loose to flush. So I'm sitting in, in, in service stations on the side of the road in Africa or Malaysia <laughs> trying to fix the system because it's so easy. You just get it to, and then it works. So, yes, I wrote to Diane and I said, um, if you want someone to uh, make the tea or mend the roof, um, I'd be happy to come and help. And I pointed out to her that my academic tutors didn't think I was... Uh, that able, um, but that I was I was keen and I travelled and I had a, a love of nature and, and she wrote back and said to her credit in my eyes um, I, I don't much mind what your academic tutors think but if it's true that you love nature and, and want to come and help we'll try you but the deal was that I had to get there and that if I spent more than three months she would pay my return fare from uh, Nairobi. Still have to get to Nairobi. At that time, as an undergraduate approaching finals, of course, you, you're writing to everyone. But in those days, it wasn't sending emails. It was handwritten letters because I didn't know how to type at that time. And so she got a, a handwritten letter. And, and I think afterwards, she did intimate that it was the fact that I wasn't telling her I was the best in my class. She said she was forever getting letters from people saying, I'm the top of my class and you need me now because I'm the best. And, and I wrote saying, well, I'm not very good, but I'd like to try. <laughs> that maybe appealed more to her. But uh, so, yeah, I, I got to Karasoki. And uh, here again, I, I describe myself as a reluctant conservationist. So I, I, I've got to camp uh, to, to Karasoki. Uh, it's at 10,000 feet in the saddle between Mount Visoki and Mount Karasimbi, hence the, the name, which is a combination of the two. Um, no radio, no telephone, no means of communication with the outside world, except in those days, twice a week, a porter um, would come up to camp. In fact, a line of porters, the head porter, Rende Gaza, who sadly has just passed on, um, and his um, team of, of porters would bring stuff up to camp. And before they would bring stuff from the market, he would go to the P.O. box in uh, what was then called Ruangeri, it is now Musanzi, and pick up the mail. Mm -hmm. So the, it was very sort of 19th century in its approach. Long line of bearers carrying things on the head, walking through the mountains. Diane wrote to me, um, having having said, yes, you can come if you, if you can get here. Uh, she said, could I uh, pick up various things in, in Nairobi, like, like the glass cylinders for 
paraffin pressure lamps because they're always breaking, so you need replacements. And she, she said, as you pass through Ruingeri, can you pick up any post? Because that would be an extra delivery. Uh, and when I got to the um, post office in Ruingeri, I found the telegram I sent from Nairobi telling her I was arriving. So I got to deliver <laughs> my own telegram. <laughs> so she wasn't expecting me on that day. I arrived after dark. And again, I, it didn't occur to me, but, but when you live in a cabin on a mountain in a forest, nobody comes a calling after dark. So you, you shut your curtains, you, you light your stove, you get on with your typing. And for someone to you know, knock on the door after dark was weird. Well, so especially that I forest. On... You've got buffaloes and everything else wandering around that forest. Uh... Well, I managed to avoid the buffaloes. Um, the, the guys who, who helped to carry my uh, bags and guide me to the camp um, refused to go and knock on Diane's door. They said, no, we're staying here by the, the campfire. You go and face Mademoiselle, because she had a reputation for being short-tempered. Um, so I knocked on the door, and the door opened about an inch, and this eye peered out, and I said, hello, uh, Dr. Fossey, I presume. I had that all lined up. <laughs> I said, my name's Ian Redmond. And she said, congratulations. Uh, and I said, here's a telegram telling you I'm coming. <laughs> anyway, yes, so that was, uh, that was then. But the, the next day, which is my first day in the field, and this is why I say about being a reluctant conservationist, Diane asked me, and the person I was replacing, who was an American traveler called Tim White, who was literally hitching through Africa, got a lift with this woman who said, I'm a bit short-staffed, can you help? And this was Diane Fossey. Imagine you're <laughs> hitching through Africa and you get a lift with Diane, who wasn't then the household name that she became. So he went up to camp expecting to spend a week or two and, and ended up spending about six months there, I think. Oh, my God. Um, and he wanted to get back on his travels. So I was his replacement. He was my introduction to the methods of observing and, and tracking and finding the gorillas, with, with the help of our Rwandan staff, of course. So uh, Tim and uh, Nemeye and I um, went to where the, the, the gorillas we'd been assigned to, Group 4, had been seen the previous day. But before we found the gorilla prints, we found footprints that had a toe in line with the other toes, not mm. opposing. These were barefoot poachers. Okay, Tim said, well, the, the, the system is, which he'd been doing for months, so the system is, if you find poaching sign that's fresh, you follow it because they might be setting snares and you might find yourself observing gorillas getting caught in snares. So, so first you cut the snares and then you go onto the gorillas. And the trail didn't lead to snares initially. It went up onto the Afro Alpine zone uh, at about 11,500 feet above sea level on Karisimbi. Oh, fantastic, my first day in the field in Africa and I'm up in this beautiful habitat, which I'd never even, you know, just it's just wonderful. Um, but then we saw the poachers in the distance across a meadow going into some trees and we crept towards them and peeked over and we saw a bit of smoke. Okay, they settled down for a fire. So that gave us a chance to creep closer and we're on the outside of a thicket of, of giant groundsel and giant um, lobelia plants and they're in, in the thicket with the fire having a rest, not knowing that they were being tracked by people that they would um, interpret as authority. Mm. I say that they would interpret as because there were two... Wazungu, two white-skinned people, right. uh, and, and a tracker. None of us had any authority to do law enforcement. You know, I was a visiting researcher. I hadn't even at that stage got my permit. I just arrived. Didn't know about permits and things. I just went up to camp. Um, so we um, crept close to the, the poachers. We could hear them talking in Kinyarwanda, a language which I didn't have, um, and nor did, did Tim, but obviously the mayor did. And Tim said, well, what we would do now is to charge them and chase them away and then confiscate their 
traps and spears and things. There were only three of us, and they're about the same number as them, but it turned out, we found later, they were actually waiting for their, their friends to join them. That's why they stopped for a, a break and lit a fire. So we charged through the thicket. Um, I had in my, my field bag a Cornwall Constabulary police whistle. I still have it, um, which gives a very official sound, to, if you understand the sound of a police whistle. Of course, it's probably the first time such a whistle had been heard in the Virunga volcanoes. But anyway, I gave that to uh, Nime, and we charged the camp. The poachers took one look and saw a couple of white skins and thought, ah, authority, we're getting out of here. So they ran. Perfect. So we shouted at them in at least three languages and uh, took their spears and, and um, traps and, and a butchered bush book that they were just presumably going to roast a little snack on the fire. Uh, so we interrupted that and then decided that we should leave before they turned around and saw there were only three of us <laughs> and before their friends arrived. So we legged it down the mountain back to camp. And that was my first day in the field, not, not studying gorillas, but um, raiding a poacher's camp. And we you know, knocked on Diane's door and said, look, <laughs> spears, traps, bushbuck. Okay, um, that was that was a sort of a portent of things to come. What we well, saw it. You sort of met the criteria of fixing things right from the get-go, didn't you? Well, I, but but what did we fix? And, and, and this this yeah, um, two years ago, I met someone who now works in uh, the Gorilla Guardians village as a musician, mm -hmm. similar age to me, and he said. I used to hide from you when I was a lad, when he was oh, setting really? snares. So I met one of the poachers whose snares I had been destroying. And I said, well, I'm glad that you're now on the right side, you know, that you're now on the conservationist side, because what you were doing then was not only illegal, but you were destroying a, 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 a natural and a national treasure. There's this forest, the animals in it. And he said, yes, but I was just trying to feed my kids. And I said, oh, yeah. come on, you, you, you were setting snares and selling the meat in town. He said, no, I didn't have those connections. I just didn't have any money. And I, so I, so I, I was literally in tears. I had been taking food off the table right. of a family of, of um, Rwandans who depended on his initiative to go out and get food. Yeah, and that's I the complexity, which it, it's taken me a long time to fully understand. Of course, I knew at the time, but they were breaking the law. Right. So, you know, if, if, if you arrest someone for doing a smash and grab in a jeweler's shop, he might say, hey, I've got kids to feed, I'm just trying to make a living, but it's against the law, and he'd serve time. And, and this guy, um, I suspect he would have served time at some point if he'd been caught. Conservation isn't just good guys and bad guys, and I used to think that I was on the right side, and now I still think I was on the right side, but I want the guys on the other side to come onto the right side, as he now has done. And I said to him, I said, you know, but the skills you have, tracking and, and your ability in the forest would make you a perfect tracker for the research center or a ranger. Why didn't you ask for a job? And it was like I'd said, why don't you speak Chinese? I mean, it wouldn't occur to him that that was an option. I, I think that's a really great point. And and at, we we have, you know, down the road, we're, we're going to do an entire talking apes um, and, and talking about bushmeat poaching and, and some of those other things. In fact, we, we actually, Meg um, and I have been talking about doing an entire month dedicated to a couple different subjects. And one of those subjects being bushmeat poaching, because it is, I, I think, as you said, I mean, there's this, there's this thought by most people, especially in the West and developed countries that you just don't, don't just go to the store and buy the stuff or just get it from some other source or eat chickens instead, you know, and um, it's a much more complex thing. And when you said, it's interesting, you said, 
on on that side of things versus one side. It's 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 a, I think of it almost like a circle. There aren't really sides. It's just this continuum in which you fit somewhere within the continuum, and we all shift our positions at different times. But we'll get we'll we'll get on to that at, at a later date. I have you realize I have a whole stack of stuff we have to get through today. So where you want me to give short, concise answers? I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but and and I and I almost fear asking this question because it may have a longer story than I was anticipating. But I do have before we leave your background and, and that beginning with Mountain Girls, I do have one thing that I ran across that I do have to ask, and that is you worked on a I'd assume most people who are watching um, this today are, uh, are familiar with the film Girl is in the Mist with Sigourney Weaver about the life of Diane Fossey. And you worked on that. You were an advisor to Sigourney Weaver, I understand, sort of helping her understand uh, behaviors and, and so forth with, with gorillas. But out of it, you came out known as the worm boy. What is that about? The worm boy? Yeah, well, I, I was interested in, I am interested in parasites, uh, and gorillas have all sorts of interesting parasites. Uh, actually, the, the, <laughs> the term in camp that Diane used was Toto Yamavi, Marvi being where you find the worms. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> so yes. Let, let, let's keep it polite, the, the dung boy. Uh, and for some reason, when she wrote Gorillas in the Mist, she decided the dung boy didn't sound right, so she made it the worm boy. Okay, you know, slightly sanitized version <laughs> of what she actually called me <laughs> on a good day. <laughs> um, but I, I, as an undergraduate at Keele University, one of our lab technicians was doing PhD on parasites of Xenopus, you know, the African clawed toad. And he had recently come back from Africa with some specimens, living clawed toads, and one of our practicals was to uh, euthanize them, sprinkle a chemical on their back, which is absorbed, and they just die, and then dissect them. And it was almost like a, a seminal moment, because here's this animal, and you open it up, and there's so many other animals living inside in different organs, worms and flukes. And, and that, was, that was really, um, for a naturalist, now, you know, not everyone thinks dissecting animals is a good idea, if uh, and, and especially if you're killing them to dissect them. But at that point, I wasn't questioning this. I was doing what I was told in a lab. Mm -hmm. So I, I dissected the, um, the Xenopus and was, I would say, th thrilled from a natural history point of view to see the, the life forms that were living inside it. And, and I would encourage anyone to be aware of that. When you look out of the window, you see a bird flying by, or, or you're walking in a forest, you see a deer. For the animals that live in and on that deer, that is their world. Exactly. So the, the lice that live in the fur and move around, uh, the, the, the ticks that cling on, have a drink and drop off, um, the inside, the, the, the nematodes and the cestodes and the trematodes and the protozoa are all part of biodiversity. And it's seldom recognized. I, I know this isn't what you wanted to talk about. You wanted to talk about big fluffy apes, but think what lives inside the apes. And one yeah. of the reasons we have to conserve gorillas is that the gorilla louse which is a unique species, the only other species in the genus Thyrus, which includes the pubic louse. So there's only two species in that genus, the human pubic louse and the gorilla louse. How did that happen? Interesting question about <laughs> evolution of parasites and their hosts. But if we want the, the gorilla louse to survive, we have to protect gorillas. And there are other reasons for wanting to protect gorillas, but that's one of them. Uh, biodiversity includes things that you might not be initially attracted to. But if you get a closer look at it, having watched it, you know, gorilla nematode 
nematodes that, that you collect from the feces swimming through a slide of fecal matter in water is beautiful. It's a sinusoidal wave motion. Now, not many people thinking of looking through a slide of gorilla shit would say, oh, how beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the eye of the beholder, you know. Ian, I, I wanted to, let, let's jump forward from that time that you were just talking about with gorillas. Let's jump forward, um, you know, almost a decade and a half, two decades, um, early 2000s, 2001. Um, you were you were around at the at the beginning of conservation had the conservation of gorillas and great apes in general. Th there was an awareness growing that hadn't been there 20, 30 years before. I mean, there was there was the science was going on, and I remember Jane Goodall, for example, talking about this. I mean, there was a sort of a pivotal moment for her. Uh, when she heard people like Richard Wrangham talking about the conservation, not just the research that had to be done. And, and this realization that if we don't do the conservation in, in coordination with the research, there isn't going to be anything to research. And in 2001, the UN recognized that and started, uh, I believe, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, the first ever sort of species-focused group, which was GRASP, a great ape survival uh, program. GRASP started with this, um, I don't I don't want to really say lofty goal, because it's, it's a very practical and realistic goal of conserving great apes, their survival on this planet, um, cut the decline that was going on, the rapid decline that was going on, and preserve habitat. There was huge amounts of habitat loss going on, and especially with, you know, orangutans in in Borneo and Sumatra. Um, you know, palm oil was ramping up at that point. We were seeing huge, huge areas of of tropical rainforest, especially lowland peat rainforest in the, in Indo Malaysia area, um, disappearing. But but across equatorial Africa as well, um, we're just seeing increased pressure on great apes. So grasp this organization. Uh, was mandated through the United Nations Environmental and uh, Environmental Program UNEP. I know you were involved sort of early on with that. Maybe you can talk a little bit about its genesis. Um, yeah. Well, before Grasp, um, I, I convened a meeting in in London of uh, ape organisations or organisations with a declared interest in in ape, um, not not just the conservation of the wild, but the welfare in captivity, and and that followed the the success of a group of organizations that was a temporary group. It's called the UK Elephant Group. And it helped to lobby to get an Appendix 1 listing for African elephants to end the international trade in ivory, uh, the legal international trade. It hasn't yet fully ended the trade, but, but still, still a work in progress. Uh, I set up a, a UK rhino group to try and, again, get the rhino organizations to work together. And I, and I felt, well, I'm not a rhino biologist, but Nobody else was doing it, and I'd written an article for BBC Wildlife trying to find out who was doing what for rhinos. And, and it turned out that a lot of these people, not only did I not know about them, they didn't know about each other. I said, come on, guys, get around the table, talk to each other. Right. Uh, and so for 10 years, I chaired the UK rhino group. But it wasn't my where I needed to be. I needed to do something similar for, for apes. And there had been efforts before to get the, the Jane Goodall Institute and what was then the, the Digit Fund, the Diane Fossil Gorilla Fund, uh, and now in the UK is a gorilla organisation. Uh, to work with the Orangutan Foundation and, and sort of pool resources in some respects. Uh, and it, 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 there were discussions, but nothing took off. And then in 96, um, enough groups got together to set up an ape group, but we decided, well, not the UK ape group. We didn't follow that path. And, and the, the Ape Alliance became the 
the the name, and, and that still exists and actually still continues to grow. It's, it's up at about a hundred organisations, and I and I still chair it. But it's just a, a platform for groups to liaise with each other and to collaborate on collective actions, uh, which we we continue to do. Then at the end of the nineties, it was increasingly apparent from reports. In, from, from the field that everywhere in the world that people were studying apes, they were disappearing. So, so like Jane, there was a realization it's no good just studying them. We have to ensure that they, they survive. And in 2000, um, UNEP, uh, which is the United Nations Environment Programme, uh, hosted the CITES Conference of the Parties. Uh, at that time, every two and a half years, now every three years, all the countries that have signed that convention meet in, in a COP conference of the parties and each of the conventions has a cop this year um, the uk is hosting cop 26 of the climate convention mm -hmm. um, there's also the convention on biodiversity and the convention on migratory species which we must talk about shortly we will. but um unep hosted the cites cop and at a side event klaus topfer who was then the executive director of unep was giving a, a welcoming speech so as well as the main event in the conference of the parties there are lots of side events at lunchtime in the evenings. NGOs come and present data and, and try and influence people with their uh, point of view as to which species should be listed or not. Top for open the side event. I was sitting next to the, the, the late, much lamented Esmond Bradley Martin, who was a geographer who was specialised in, in rhino and elephant uh, ivory trade. And in the early 90s, I'd written about him in BBC Wildlife because he was the first UN envoy for anything other than the human stuff. Mm -hmm. He was designated as a UN envoy for rhino conservation. And I'd written about that. So I'm sitting with Esmond and I'm, I'm saying, you know, what we need is a, a UN envoy for ape conservation and, and going at the top level, convince heads of state and ministers that this, this is serious. And he basically said, well, there's top for go and talk to him. Me go and talk to the executive director of UNEP. So uh, yes, I doorstepped Klaus Topfer <laughs> outside a side event and said, look, I, I chair this coalition of organizations. Apes are disappearing from their forests all over the world. They're gonna go 10 years ago, 20, whatever it was, 10 years ago, your predecessor appointed an envoy for rhino conservation. Oh, you didn't know that. Obviously, if you're not, if you're not in the rhino world, you wouldn't know that. But right. uh, And I said, we need an envoy for ape conservation. Obviously, I was volunteering, but that didn't happen straight away. That was years later that I got that title. But anyway, um, he said, yes, go and talk to uh, and one of his heads of department. So I straight away go knock on the door of the head of department and, and say, oh, Dr. Topfer asked me to come and speak to you. Now, if I said, my name's Ian Redmond, I'm a biologist, I chair the April Lines, can I talk to you? to said, no, <laughs> go away, I'm busy. But because I said, Dr. Topfer said I should come and talk to you, bam, come in, sit down. <laughs> Yep. Good lesson there. Yep. Try and yep. get in at the top. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was 2000. May 2001, UNEP announced they were creating the, the Great Ape Survival Project. I was ready to, to go, go and do stuff in the summer of 2000. It was urgent. You know, we're trying to respond to a crisis. And it was actually September 2001 when GRASP was launched. Mm. And, and it seemed to me incredibly slow. But everyone I've spoken to who knows about UN agencies and the speed they, they move, that a year from first concepts to announcing is like super fast okay <laughs> so that partly answers your your question why has not grasped them more well it's been limited by resources there's never been enough money to do what we would like to do and it's been limited by the fact that a un agency 
has no executive power over the member countries. You, the United Nations is a servant of its members. Mm -hmm. not, so it's not like a, a corporation where there's a, a boss, a CEO, and he tells everyone what to do and they do it or they lose their job. No, this is a coalition, a, a, a coalition of the willing. Willing nations sign up to the UN, and when they agree to something, it's only after everyone has gone through and by the time everyone agrees, it's a lot watered down to what it might have been. Mm -hmm. But we have a UN body, and it's not a project now, it's, it's a partnership. So in 2002, GRASP was elevated to the, the status of a type two partnership. Now, UN bodies are all about intergovernmental relations. So it's government to government. And if NGOs are allowed into a meeting, it's as an observer. You can't vote. You can sometimes speak if the chairman recognizes your expertise, but it's very frustrating to be an observer and not be able to change the course of events. But that's how the UN works, mm -hmm. it's through consent. And, and occasionally it'll go to a vote, which it does in other controversial things in, in CITES, for example. For the UN to invite its member governments to join a partnership to work with NGOs and the private sector was very radical thinking for that time. And, and it's still there. So yes, it hasn't yet achieved all that it set out to do, but it has achieved a lot. And I think the difference between that those early days of GRASP, where I, I wasn't even allowed to have a, a card with... A, UNEP on it because I worked for I was I was a freelance working under a contract between an NGO, the Born Free Foundation, mm -hmm. and the United Nations Environment Program. So I couldn't speak for the UN, and it was a long time before they actually gave me a card that says that said grasp, a, you know, with with a UNEP logo on it because they're very worried about activists and and people coming in and, and rocking the boat and causing embarrassing situations and and, and diplomatic um, incidents between countries. So mm -hmm. it, that took them time to understand where I was coming from. Um, now they, they I, I'm an ambassador for a, a UN convention, the, the Convention on Migratory Species. But well, and and I would like, yeah, let's let's jump to that um, if if we can. Well, can. Can we go there via grasp? Because yeah, sure. The, 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 those early years of GRASP led up to a meeting in 2005 mm -hmm. in Kinshasa, under the uh, hosted by the, the president, although he didn't actually come, he sent his deputy. We had a meeting in Kinshasa on the conservation of, of ape, great apes and their habitat, and it was represented by most ape range states at ministerial level. So that's extraordinary. Never has, has there been that level of political will saying we recognize that apes are important. And out of that meeting came the Kinshasa Declaration, which is everything you or I could wish for. You can find it on the GRASP website. Right. It, it's, you know, we, we slaved late into the night. We, we had input from all the range states and all the NGOs, and all those that have signed it agree to it. Implementing a declaration is tricky because, A, there will be a cost implication and, and not many people were putting extra money in. Some donor governments did, and GRASP is still getting significant sums of donor government money to uh, fund projects with NGO partners and uh, government partners. So stuff is happening in GRASP, mm. but they're very underfunded and understaffed, and so you don't get to hear that much about it unless you're directly involved. The Kinshasa Declaration was not legally binding. It was a declaration of good intent, and it had no power of law. The person who sort of orchestrated that in UNEP was a, a, a British um, civil servant who was on secondment called Rob Hepworth. And Rob had visited gorillas. He thought they were amazing. And, and he helped to make my urging UNEP to do something and Topfer's agreement something should be done. Rob knew how the UN worked and, and brought together this, this initiative. So all credit to him. He then went on to become the executive secretary of the Convention on Migratory Species. And under his mm -hmm. guidance, uh, at that time, the only primate listed as a migratory species was the mountain gorilla. Now, to most people thinking of any primate, they're not migratory species. Migratory species, you think, whales in the oceans Birds. or sharks. Exactly. 
yeah. birds in the you know that fly from the, the Arctic North to winter in England or fly from winter in Africa to summer in England. That's a migratory species. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you might think of the the, the Serengeti wildebeest migration. Uh, uh, true, the Convention on Migratory Species is designed to not only encompass the traditional biologically migratory species, but also those species that predictably and cyclically move back and forth across an international border. And mountain gorillas were known to do that because when the bamboo is shooting, they come down into the bamboo, which sometimes in some parts of their range in the Virungas involves crossing a border. So they had been listed when the CMS was then, then some years later, uh, Congo Brazzaville said, well, hang on, our, our gorillas are moving back and forth between CAR. And so yes. all gorillas were listed. And Rob, uh, while he was executive secretary, had this idea of using species as a sort of a, an educational and awareness raising tool. So they had the year of the dolphin, then they had the year of the gorilla, then they had the year of the bat. Those campaigns are not active now. But in 2009, just after an agreement was reached between the 10 countries that have gorillas, which is called, unimaginatively, the Gorilla Agreement, <laughs> that is a legally binding treaty. Well, which which is interesting because I, I just saw that um, just recently, like in the last weekish or so, Angola had signed on becoming the eighth of the 10, uh, 10 countries in the range state. I, well, why, I mean, in 2007, I think the gorilla disagreement with CMS, the um, Convention on Migratory Species, gorillas uh, were brought into that in the agreement. Um, well, the, the agreement was created, yes. Yeah. Uh, and enough countries ratified it the next year, but not all of them, not all 10 have ratified it. All 10 were in the room when it was negotiated, but ratifying a, a legally binding treaty has to go through various processes and as you say, so, recently so Angola. Those, I mean, you're, you maybe you can shed some light on this. I mean, you're you're inside a little more than than most people on the planet. I mean, I, I think to the average person in 2007, you you come up with this addendum or addendum or agreement, or you say that at this point, you know, the gorillas are focused. Here's the 10 range state, and here it is. What are we? 13, 14 years later, we still there's there's still two of the 10 that haven't even ratified it. So it's frustrating, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I think a normal person would say, what is the point? I mean, wait, wait, are, is that even relevant? The thing that we, we created in 2007, is it even relevant in 2021? Or is the state of gorillas such that we, we need a whole different sort of focus and, and agreement? And then is that going to take another 12, 15 years to get that ratified? I mean, so let's leave that question for a moment. But let's talk about you have you are the uh, an ambassador for CMS for the Convention on Migratory Species. What does that mean to be an ambassador? You're you're the ambassador. You were the ambassador for uh, the Year of the Gorilla. You're the ambassador for um, CMS. What so what what does that mean? And what does that you know what does that enable you to do that I couldn't do or it it, it it's sometimes I mean I, I think of it as a as a, a Jemmy. You know what a Jemmy is. The yeah, Jimmy is a, a, a oh, right, right. Forcing, forcing open doors. Yes, yes. Um, but this is a sort of a diplomatic Jimmy, in that it can sometimes get me into rooms to express views and and um, change the course of events when decisions are being made that might affect the future mm. of, of the apes we care about and the forests in which they they live. Uh, that doesn't mean that I have much power. Um, but I maybe have a chance to influence the course mm-hmm. of events. I, I still work a lot with NGOs, with non-governmental organizations. But as I was saying, NGOs are observers at UN events. 
and, and can often be very influential if they can persuade a representative of the country to pre present information that will convince other people that, that the decision should go this way in favour of the protection of the guerrillas or that way, which might have a different outcome. But, but at the same time that, that those of us who care about wildlife and their habitats are doing our best to protect it and raising funds and, and perhaps you know, having appeals which bring in a few tens of thousands or maybe even a few hundreds of thousands, and the bigger NGOs might have a few million dollars to spend on their projects to try and protect habitat and species. At the same time, corporations are wielding billions, with a B, billions of dollars, to see if there's any minerals of value under that forest, or if putting a road through there might facilitate the extraction of that timber or that. So most of the world's economy is still focused on extractive industries to get stuff, to make stuff to sell to us. So we, in the developed world especially, but in the developing world, if you happen to have resources, and there's just as big a, a wealth gap between the wealthiest few in a developing country and the poorest few, as there is in, in the UK. There are gazillionaires, and there are people who are just scraping by. And there's a far more in the, in the latter category than in the former category. So how can we influence the, those people with large sums of money at their disposal or corporations who are legally mandated to make as much profit as they can for their shareholders? That's, that's the purpose of, of company law. It's not save the world. It's make the maximum profit for your shareholders. And yeah. that's all skew if. So, so what we need to do, and this is where we come to a key phrase, we need to rebalance Earth. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that phrase with a smile because after some deliberation uh, over the past few weeks, a group of people trying to do just that came up with that title. So there's now a company called Rebalance Earth. Mm. And what it's going to do, and you'll, you'll like this, I hope, um, last year uh, a paper was published by... Um, team of zoologists led by Fabio Berzaghi, and he had studied the above-ground carbon in two forests in the Congo Basin, one where there are forest elephants and one there are no forest elephants, and there's about 7% difference. An assistant director of the International Monetary Fund, Ralph Sharmi, who had previously done some calculations that put the carbon sequestration value of each individual great whale at $2 million because of the, the role they play not only in, in being tons of carbon themselves, but of um, bringing nutrients from the deep up to the surface area where the phytoplankton uh, photosynthesize, take in CO2, release oxygen, store carbon. And the whales do this by, and I love this phrase, fecal plumes. <laughs> so we're back to we're back to dung, but we're but back to when dung. whale dung isn't in big lumps like gorilla dung or elephant dung, it's it's a fecal plume. And that is a plume of nutrients which fertilizes the phytoplankton. So if a whale lives for a full life, then you can calculate that he or she is responsible for $2 million worth of carbon sequestration. And that rather changes the attitude of ship owners who in the past might have accidentally bumped into a whale and killed it. Oh dear, we've killed a whale. That's a shame. We didn't mean to do that. But there's no comeback. Hang on, if you just killed a $2 million animal, you've got a problem. You need an insurance policy. You need sonar to protect. And that's that's now happening thanks to Ralph and his team who are advising a pilot project off Chile to protect whales. Then Ralph worked with Fabio to do the same for forest elephants. Turns out that if an elephant lives for about 60 years, over that time, he or she is responsible for the sequestration of about $1.75 million worth of carbon. We haven't yet done that calculation for gorillas, but it's coming. 
Well, yeah. you need to know, these are all, the, the, the species we're talking about, apes and elephants and whales, are keystone species in their habitat. And for a long time, academics have been talking about payment for ecosystem services. And there are a few examples around the world where it's actually happening, but it's for the whole ecosystem. And I would talk to these people and I'd say, look, what about the keystone species? Surely you can put a value on what they do. And nobody had until Ralph. The carbon markets which exist today and which are likely to go up, the price of carbon is likely to go up because of the, the, the climate agreement, which says we're all going to get to uh, carbon neutrality within the next decade or two or three. To do that, it's going to take a long time to change all the machinery. That has to happen. This isn't instead of cutting greenhouse gas emissions, it's in addition. Mm -hmm. But companies that commit to carbon neutral operating uh, system need in the short term to offset their greenhouse gas emissions. And the offs carbon offset market is full of charlatans, people who are more interested in millions of dollars than they are in protecting the biosphere or, or certainly protecting wildlife. What does that matter? Sticks of carbon, think of forests. And, and I'm saying, well, among the sticks of carbon, there, there are the cogs in the forest, which are the primates that disperse the seeds and prune the trees and fertilize the soils. And, and elephants are, are the most important. Um, but in, in, in Latin America, the, the spider monkeys are on the ground, the tapirs, and in the air, the, the toucans are all playing a role. And no one has put a price on not the animal, that, that is offensive, but on what they do. Right. So right. Rebalance Earth is going to focus the attention of the carbon markets on the role of individual animals, not just species and populations, but, but George and Betsy and Mildred, whatever we call these elephants. Um, and each day that one of those elephants is seen and recorded as being alive and well and in its forest, then the number of days since the previous time it was seen will be counted up and through a blockchain system, which is corruption proof, I'm told, a traceable, a transparent system of, of uh, digital transactions, they will be able to redeem some credit from the carbon offset money that big companies that are trying to balance their carbon budget have put into an account. So it's, it's just being developed now, but watch this space. We'll have a pilot project soon for forest elephants, but clearly we need to expand this out to other species uh, and other habitats. Yeah. And instead yeah. of a, a, a global economy that only values nature as a source to extract um, goods and, and raw materials from, there will be a value placed on the living nature, a regenerative economy is how Ralph puts it. And Ralph was a professor of economy before he went to the IMF. He's rewriting the economics textbooks because, uh, and I didn't study economics, but I'm told that traditional economics regards nature as an externality. It's not within this clever system that we economists have built, whereas to an ecologist, come on, <laughs> it's the foundation of all our systems. And, and, and that's I'm, I'm going to stop you right there with that foundation because um, we, we've only got a couple of minutes left. We are going to actually have, um, and because of you and because of uh, uh, an online Zoom call that um, several people were in with the Ape Alliance um, some months ago in this this blockchain approach to things. I, I want to do an entire talking apes about that. It gets in, in a, a little bit deeper and to talk about the very thing that you were you were alluding to was you know where do apes fit into that? I mean, where do they move across boundaries? And then it kind of ref, kind of reflects on. I mean, we started to talk about. Um, this convention on migratory species and a number of those species migrate across borders. Uh, we know that, and not just gorillas, but now chimps and, and things. You know, orangutans may 
be the only ones that don't because they live on islands. But even there, uh, you know, who knows what well, right, in, on, on doing Borneo, on there are some orangutans that move between Malaysia and Indonesia. Malaysia and Indonesia, exactly. So we're going to get back to that. I mean, you have been connected to apes for, for over four decades now. And what can, what can we do to save apes? What can the average person do to save apes? What is the, the, the short answer and the positive answer that you generally give? People? Well, um, we all have three Ps. We have the power of our pocket or purse. So when we buy stuff, we can make sure that our money is not going into the system to destroy ape habitat. So that, that means it's very hard to avoid palm oil, but you can insist on um, sustainable deforestation-free palm oil. It does exist. It's hard to find. And only by public consumer pressure are you going to force the corporations to take that seriously. But it's happening. And, and the campaigns to, to either avoid or demand sustainably produced palm oil are having the, the desired effect. The other P, our political power. Even if we're too young to vote, politicians know that you're going to vote when you're past the age of, of suffrage. So um, writing to MPs, even as, as children, so if there are kids watching this thinking, oh, that's, uh, that's for when I'm grown up. No, actually, politicians who get letters from kids often want to reply to them because it makes them look good. So make, sure. them, make them feel good. Write to them and, and say what you care about because they are elected to represent your views. And if you don't tell them your views, how can they represent them? And not that many people write to politicians about apes. So that's so you've got the power of your purse, your political power, and your personal power. We all have energy. How do we spend that energy? Well, you can volunteer for an NGO that helps apes. And that can be fundraising. It can be educational. If you're a teacher, you can make sure your kids have got stuff on the walls about apes. Not just because they're cute and they, they bear a passing resemblance to us and share a lot of DNA with us, all of which are good reasons for caring about apes, but because of the role they play in the ecosystems that are essential to stabilize our climate. So you've got a new administration in the States recognizing the importance of the climate crisis. Around the world, governments are taking action, but they're taking action often driven by environmental concerns and the same big corporations that are mandated by law to maximize the profits for their shareholders are still looking, how can they exploit more, extract more of this, more of that? And we have to change that. And we can do that, that by taking personal pledges. And, and the things you can do for, for the climate in general are very clear. And one of them is not flying. I mean, I haven't flown for a year, but that's because of a pandemic. <laughs> so the pandemic has, has kind of brought us all to a halt. Like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe we're not getting this right. And it's hard for a conservationist who works in many countries to influence the course of events in those countries from a laptop in Stroud. But I've been doing that for 10 months now. <laughs> it doesn't look like I'm going anywhere soon. So use our, our, using our ability to inform people, um, recognize that, that apes are not ornaments, they're not pets, they, they should not be used in selfies. So if you see people on social media um, saying, I was on holiday and I, and I got a monkey sitting on my shoulder and isn't, doesn't it make a cute profile picture, just send them a gentle reminder. No, somebody killed that monkey's parents. And, and when it's getting too big to play the role of, of a semi-drugged stooge to be plonked on tourists, it'll probably be killed. And your $10 that you paid for your selfie is paying for that industry. So, so there are lots of ways in which humans impact on apes, both individually and, and through their habitat. And because we're on such a connected planet now, we can all influence the course of events. So, so you're on social media, you see, and it's not hard, you look on Facebook, you find people advertising primates for sale on Facebook. So you write to this Facebook saying, this is outrageous. This is 
even if it's legal in the country where it's happening and it's supposedly a captive bred animal, the fact that it's there means that a dealer in, in Cameroon or, 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 or Malaysia going online say, oh, that's how much apes are selling for in the UK. Then it's just a matter of logistics. How do I get the baby ape that I know I can get to that person who's willing to pay thousands of dollars for it? But would he think the same if he was part of a scheme that was monitoring the ape and that ape's carbon sequestration value had been uh, worked out? So he was part, getting much more money from the living, healthy ape in its natural habitat. Right. That's the, the goal we're in now. And, and I'm sure that, that GRASP and the CMS and, and any other UN um, convention or, or uh, agreement will will play a role when necessary. Because if you're valuing an elephant or an ape at this much, and it's walking back and forth across the border, of course you need an agreement between the two countries. That's what CMS does. It organizes bilateral or trilateral agreements so that issues like that, uh, as happened again with mountain gorillas as our model, when gorilla tourism became so successful and some of the very profitable groups that tourists were coming to see were crossing back and forth between countries, the three countries formed a treaty to regulate that and share the, the money. And we're going to have and, to have something and, like that for every and country. And you and I that... need to form a treaty um, and an agreement to come and do this again, because now we're out of time. Uh, <laughs> as as we, we knew when we talked about even doing this to, to start with. Ian, um, I, I do, I do, we do have to end it there. And I want to, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know your schedule. I mean, we email back and forth, and I know your inbox is is jammed. And you're on, you know, you're not only ambassador, but you're on. It seems like every committee and every group out there. Um, no, 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 just what is you're, you're doing something. So, I, I just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us, and and we will do this again. Um, there's so many other topics, ecotourism and the impact that we make, and especially now but, that we've seen what's happening. Go ahead. Just before you wrap, yes. the one thing we didn't spend enough time talking about is the joy of being around apes. Yeah. And we're, a lot of us are locked down in our homes under house arrest because of this. But while we're stuck at our desks, it's very difficult to connect with nature. So I would like everyone to whatever device you're on, turn it off and go outside and breathe, barefoot if possible, so that you connect <laughs> with the earth. And then when you come back in, uh, every day during the, the lockdown, uh, I did it last year, I'm doing it again this year, I'm doing a daily Brighten Your Day video on my YouTube channel, which often involve apes and elephants, mm. and sometimes other species like slugs or dolphins. But anyway, um, just a moment of, of um, simple natural history, brought to you by these amazing devices that we're all using so that you can be somewhere else in the world and enjoy learning about a species. And that I think will feed people's appreciation of the animals. And as you appreciate the animal, recognize that you are breathing air and drinking water that is directly connected to that healthy ecosystem. We are a part of nature and whatever the devices we're using to talk to each other and connect across the world with nature, go outside barefoot, touch the earth and just think about those connections. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Ian Redman, OBE, for his time and for sharing with us an incredibly entertaining and enlightening hour. You've been listening to Talking Apes, where each episode we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people, and with conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the forefront of what's happening with our wild ape cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you have any questions for us here at Talking Apes or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at media at globio.org. That's media at G-L-O-B-I-O dot org. I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work behind the scenes on another great episode. And finally, I'd like to thank you for your support gives apes a voice. Help share their voice by making a tax-deductible donation at globio.org. Until next time, I'm Jerry Ellis, and you've been listening to Talking Apes.